Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. Today I'm talking with my good friend, fellow artist, and billiard rival, Leko Morris, about Albert Einstein. Specifically, we're talking about Einstein's religious beliefs, which are incredibly relevant today, but which have often been misunderstood by both atheists and believers. Both Leko and I have looked up to Einstein since we were young, and the older I get, the more I learn about him, and the more I stand in awe of who he was, both as a scientist and as a man. Today, science is often seen as utilitarian, something done for the sake of power by way of knowledge or profit by way of technology. But for Einstein, the pursuit of science was a sacred act, the height of which he called the cosmic religious feeling. He believed science was as much about humble awe as it was about awesome answers. He was one of the world's greatest scientists, and without a shred of supernaturalism, I believe he was also one of its greatest mystics. Before we launch into this episode, I want to let you know what this podcast means to me. Reenchantment is the culmination of the last five years of my life, and in some ways of my entire life. I've struggled with depression ever since I was young, and much of it had to do with the feeling that the universe and human life lacked any real purpose. I know that there are others out there struggling in similar ways, and this show is meant to be a resource for new and hopeful ways of thinking and living. I've taken a gamble on this show, creating it entirely out of my own pocket with the belief that there are others out there who are searching for rich and life-affirming ideas and who want to learn from religions without becoming religious. I don't regret a thing, but right now, times are tight. During the pandemic, all of my usual sources of income have dwindled uh, to pretty much nothing. And so I'd like to ask you for help. I've decided to start a Patreon account for reenchantment. Uh, for those who don't know, patreon.com is a platform that allows you to easily support your favorite artists and creators. And uh, so while you're listening, you can find me on Patreon by clicking on the link in this episode's description or by going to patreon.com and searching for reenchantment. And if you become a patron, you'll get special gifts and rewards. If you contribute at the $2 level, I'll broadcast a special thank you on an upcoming episode of the show. At the $4 level, you'll get both a thank you and special access to a series of videos where I talk about inspirational ideas and mental techniques you can try at home. If you contribute at the $9 level, along with a shout out and access to the videos, you also get to ask me any question you like related to the show and I'll answer it on an upcoming episode. There's also a $15 level, a $20 level, and the magical $30 level, where on top of everything else, you'll get a one-hour Zoom conversation with me about whatever topic you want related to the show, and I'll record it. If it ends up being a great conversation, I might just use it as an actual episode. If you don't have any money to spare right now, I understand. I'm just happy that you're here and that you're listening. But if you do have a few extra dollars each month and you find value in this podcast, please, please, please consider contributing because even a few bucks will be a big help towards helping me cover the costs of producing the show, which go towards everything from expensive mics to podcast hosting and website fees. With your help, I hope to carry on through this pandemic and I hope that the ideas in this podcast will help carry you far beyond that. So please go to patreon.com slash reenchantment right now and sign up for any amount. Whatever you give, I'll be grateful for it. And just one more note. On this episode, unlike most, Leka will be asking the questions and for the most part, I'll be answering them. And now, my conversation with Leka Morris about the religious beliefs of Albert Einstein. Leko Morris, welcome to Reenchantment. 
welcome to the exact same stoop little blue stone patio that I built. So you, welcome to my blue stone patio, <laughs> Daniel, here in uh, Schenectady, New York. Uh, yeah, we've got we've got the bugs uh, chirping all around us and the uh, pentatonic scale uh, mm -hmm. playing on the wind chime. And yeah, today I want to talk about uh, Albert Einstein and Einstein's views on religion. Now, you were saying before that you'd read a lot about Einstein growing up as a kid. Yeah, I, he was one of the first people I became weirdly, weirdly obsessed with. And what I was so intrigued by is how he was not... He didn't seem to follow any traditional intellectual path. He simply pursued his own sense of wonder. I mean, such that even as a kid, they thought he was developmentally disabled because I think he was wondering so hard. <laughs> and I just thought that was excellent. And yeah, I, 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 loved, his, I loved his story, really, as, mm. a, as, a, as an intellectual and his, and his willingness to, his like abiding willingness to not know, which mm -hmm. I thought, which is so antithetical to the way people talk about Einstein. It's a cultural figure. You point at someone and say, oh, you're an Einstein. And it's sort of like, well, I don't think Einstein would have pointed at himself and said you're an Einstein. So, sure, um, sure. yeah, I, I just liked that. Yeah, and I think he was he was always uh, a rebel in certain ways, or just very much even in his in his science in his scientific career. I think he took up a job at the patent office because he couldn't find a job in in a university after graduating because he criticized you know some of his physics professors because they weren't taking into account some of the cracks that were appearing in the Newtonian vision of the world. And so, you know, you know, the story of Einstein is like, it was in that patent office that he had the time to really figure out the basics of special relativity, the fundamental breakthrough that he had. Honestly, in terms of like, you know, it, most people know him as, you know, Einstein the physicist, but fewer people know about Albert the man. He was so much more than just a physicist and a scientist. Yeah. I his sense of humanness always ran through everything. There's even, there's a, there's a, there's an image of, he would, he would, he would retire to a boat with his violin mm -hmm. to play on this little lake. And he was, I think, considered by others and by himself to be not that good at the violin. <laughs> Pretty mediocre at, at, at the violin. And um, there's this other story just in terms of like, he always approaches things from this human angle where he was walking along a street and he heard um, a violin coming from somewhere and he just ran up the stairs and said, may I join you? And a friendship blossomed from that. And I think that's, uh, that to me is the process by which he finds wonder in his own actual life is so similar to his process of of imagining and I also think his 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 relationship to spirituality and religion is yeah. is co comes from the same wellspring that his humanness does and from the same wellspring as being in your sinecure patent office and dreaming up of how the world may work yeah no absolutely and I think that's exactly right in terms of what role wonder played in his life and particularly in his religious and spiritual beliefs we'll get into a little bit more about the theology that he constructed around uh, wonder but for him one of the highest forms of religious experience was what he called the cosmic religious feeling which is uh, very much looking at the at the cosmos and understanding it you know as this mystery as this sacred mystery as this esoteric expanse that scientists were doing their darndest to try and understand and he was at the forefront of that and even even there even as considered one of the smartest men alive one of the really one of the f uh, most groundbreaking physicists of his time, if not all time, he also at the same time knew how much he didn't know. And that modesty and that humbleness, I think was is really important to understand because he valued, he prized uh, wonder and being able to stand wrapped in awe before everything that we do not yet know. 
And I think that that is central to his religious feelings. In the same way that he discovery or or, or, or knowledge wasn't wasn't getting closer to attaining total knowledge. It was opening a door to something even, you know, a, a heavier door. Opening a door to a heavier door and that you're going to constantly have to push through and that that's, that's just the process, that it isn't, that it's the asking of the questions themselves that is what's important. And to me, that's identical about his relationship to spirituality as it is to his own science. Yeah, and I guess I want to I want to like drop a word just about Einstein as a as a humanist because this is this is actually something that, that I didn't know about him for for a while and Einstein I I read Einstein's work even in high school I was reading his book on special relativity because I actually wanted to become a physicist uh, a lot of people don't know that about me now but I was I was pretty dead set on on going into physics and it was it wasn't until I think halfway through my time at Yale that I realized studying people is actually a lot more interesting I'm gonna push you a little bit because the actual story is a little bit more interesting you had as I recall, on a long trip together when we talked about this, a very close mentorship relationship with, I believe, the head of the physics program. And you'd meet with him, and there was a specific thing he told you that sort of brought you towards this path of humanism and away from physics. You walk us through that again? Well, it was, I think the conversation, the conversation you're, you're mentioning there is, there were several people, several physics professors at Yale that I, I got close to and I, in my first few years. And there was one conversation, though, that, that really gave me pause. It was with an astrophysicist, and he, he was, he is you know, currently now, even, even now, at the forefront of his field. Kind of the place that I was hoping to eventually be, you know, a couple decades down the line. And he just very seriously like, and very candidly said to me that once you get to the forefront of your field, there's no one there but you. You have no way of checking your work with anybody else because very few people understand the math that you're dealing with or the, just the physical concepts. There's, there, there are also no, there's no answers in the back of any textbook. You don't know if you're going down the right path or the wrong path. And, and he was very candid with me. He said it, it, it can breed depression. It can be really emotionally and psychologically challenging. And uh, honestly, at that point, I, I, was, already, I was already feeling like um, the internal universe of the human mind, the human, human soul, was something that I really was gravitating towards. And looking down the, the, the road of physics and, and of really like, avant-garde science, so to speak, it, it struck me as, in many ways, a lonely road. Mm. And I know some people, many people, walk that road and they get, gain a lot of satisfaction from it. And in fact, Einstein was talking about how scientists are, in a sense, the, the only true religious workers of our day. But for me, I felt like I needed to get closer to the human universe. Mm. And that, in many ways, is what I'm, what I'm doing with this podcast. Uh, yeah, I was wondering and thinking about this, because it seems to me his, his relationship to, to religion, to sacredness, is so based in wonder. And I was thinking, what other religions are based in wonder? Is that, I wonder, and his, his, his idea that these scientists are the true, are the true religious laborers, partly because they're, they, they are, they live in mystery. And I was wondering, just a, a vague scanning of the world religions in my head, what, how, how deeply wonder is embedded into strict religions, or, or if, in a way, that feeling is heralding is heralding a different way of thinking about sure. about one's relationship to the universe. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think a lot of people have a lot of people that I think have a caricature of religions in their minds would say that religions give you answers. They give you answers to how the world got started, where humanity comes from, where everything is headed. And in some ways, yes, that's true. But in other ways, many religions actually 
utilize mystery and that which is hidden in, in, in a far more profound way that I think most people outside of religions really give it credit for or really understand. And in terms of really like leaning into wonder, I think the closest thing that exists in the religious world to I think what Einstein is talking about is actually the mystical traditions. Mm. The mystical traditions, in some way, they, they seem like the, the polar opposites of you know, a scientist's perspective. But in many ways, they, what mystics are trying to do is they're trying to pull back the veil of illusion and see reality, the world as it really is. And mysticism is all about wonder, awe, standing in the face of in the face of God and and being either annihilated by that that overwhelming shimmer or brightness or becoming one with it coming to understand it in some way and really what Einstein I think is is talking about when he's uh, talking about the cosmic religious feeling I think he's talking about mystical experience but he's not talking about it from the point of view of any orthodoxy or any supernatural uh, belief. Uh, he's talking about it as a human experience that is in some ways universal, but for, for him it has everything to do with science and uncovering the esoteric hidden truths of the physical universe on which you know, everything stands. Mm. And really, that's what Einstein was involved with. His views of the universe, he was considered by some one of the first cosmologists of the, the scientific world. His theories and his ideas like, really were just reached out to the, to the ends of the universe. You know, universe doesn't really have ends, but yeah, and, and in many ways, religions have a cosmological aspect to them. That's not what, that's not the entirety of what religions are or, or do, but that sense of a global perspective on the largest scale, that's what religions have provided for human beings for thousands of years. And now, I think what is unique about our, our, our age in the past few hundred years is suddenly we have we either uh, can no longer believe in many of those old cosmological blueprints, but at the same time, we now have ways of seeing out far beyond uh, the clouds and far beyond uh, the moon. And there's, there's this question of like, okay, well, how do we integrate this into our cosmology? Or rather, now that we have this cosmology, where do we fit in it? And how do we you know, make sense of all this? Mm. I have a strange question for you. In, in this book, Religion for Atheists, there's this supposition that religion accomplishes three pivotally important things. Do you know who wrote that book? I don't, and I don't know much about it, so let me not, I just, okay. I just know, I know, I know the lead line here. I know the lead line. Just enough to sound, you know, good on a podcast or whatever. <laughs> who wrote that book? I don't know. Oh, okay, no, I, 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 right. I was, I was curious. I was <laughs> just. Uh, I, okay, I need, I need to know one more piece of information to sound smarter than a podcast. Got it. I'm writing it down. But what I found so fascinating about the concept of the book is the the rich analysis of all religions throughout history and what they actually provided their the their believers, mm -hmm. and it was a celebration of the entrances, births. The exits are deaths, and the unions are our marriages. I said, well, it can be a lot more than a marriage, but our marriages on this on this earth, and that those within a society, within a functioning society, that those three components of a person's life need, and it's almost proven historically, we build things based on need. All of our religions are providing that celebration, and I wonder as we're thinking about Einstein, if there is room in science for that? Mm. Well, I mean, that's a whole other podcast episode, but I mean, scientism, worshiping science, is something that people have, have toyed with or, or tried, to, tried to instantiate. And uh, Einstein is not, is not a, a saying that we should worship science, necessarily. Mm. And in fact, it's interesting because Einstein's conceptions of you know, religious conceptions, they're mystical, scientific mysticism, essentially. They're focused on knowledge, they're focused on discovery of the real. But at the same time, what science doesn't deal with, and what Einstein also supplemented in his life, is the, the human element of like, okay, how do we, 
uh, grieve or how do we do mm. gatherings how do we create moral codes because science doesn't say anything about morality doesn't give us any direction there and so that actually that's why he was also a secular humanist he was involved with various humanist organizations in New York he was part of the first humanist society of New York he was on the board of advisors he spoke at the ethical culture society that was started by Adler I believe he was very much involved with humanism there because humanism is not just about forms of knowing uh, reality, it's also about essentially an ethical system. It's putting humans at the kind of center of your consideration, not dogmas, not laws, but okay, what, it, what is actually helping humans? And human rights, as we understand it now, actually came out of this milieu of, of early humanists in the early 20th century were very seriously considering how do we live morally without God? And I think most, most people don't really, don't really look at or don't really know much about Einstein as an activist, Einstein as a humanist. But throughout his life, and when he first came to New York as a refugee in 1933, I believe, from Nazi Germany, immediately within nine months he had called some of the biggest names you know Eleanor Roosevelt and various top name mathematicians and activists to create the International Rescue Committee and to this day like some some 80 years later it is still operational it's actually one of the biggest rescue and refugee organizations in the world mm. they I've donated to them several times and they're they're at basically all of the major crises, earthquakes, droughts, famines, and they, they help hundreds of millions of people. Wow. Albert Einstein was the one that called for the foundation of this organization because he himself was a refugee and he knew what was going on in Germany. Mm. At that point in time, there were, no, there were no real refugee organizations in the world. This was a new thing. And he, for the rest of his life, was an was outspoken against militarism, against war, against nuclear proliferation. He spoke out actively against racism of various sorts here in America uh, as well as elsewhere. There are few scientists that I know of with as deep and rich a sense of responsibility and, and care for the human world where the science doesn't eclipse anything else. What would, what would a science look like where those values, these Einsteinian human values, was embedded in it, like, yeah. deeply. I wonder what that would look like. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question. From, from one perspective, you could say, well, that wouldn't change how science operates at all, because it's, it's a completely different, different question. Like, science is all about getting to the answer, to the right answer, as, as efficiently and as effectively as possible. But that's actually not an honest, it's not, not, not a full representation of how science is done. Science and ethics are, is a complicated, complicated thing. In the Holocaust, during the Holocaust, Nazi doctors were essentially experimenting on Jews, doing horrible, horrible, brutal things, sucking the air out of people's lungs to see how long they would last and you know submerging them in, in cold water baths and and essentially testing the limits of of the human body in these brutal ways and that resulted in a lot of medical data biological mm. facts about human beings that we could not have gotten in any other way there is a genuine question of what do we do with that knowledge some people say that actually we shouldn't use that knowledge that that data should actually, we should pretend that it doesn't exist. Mm, wow. And it's, it's, a real, it's a real question about the, the intersection of, of ethics and science, ethics and technology, that I think today we have to grapple you know, with facial recognition technology, with creation of artificial intelligence, with surveillance to an unprecedented degree. How are these things going to shake out socially? 
I worked with uh, Greg Epstein, the Harvard humanist chaplain, and he right now is doing a lot of writing and a lot of thinking about this, this exact topic. He wrote the book Good Without God several years back, and now he's, he's very much trying to dig deep into the, into the tech industry and see, like, where is this all headed? And can we, can we even stop uh, the momentum that is built up towards a faster, more efficient, more powerful civilization? And how can we bring human concerns and human values into our artificial intelligences? If we don't, then we risk destroying ourselves because programming uh, a computer to make the most efficient paperclip in existence, the AI will, will optimize that and turn everything into paperclips. <laughs> as far as the eye can see, it will colonize other planets yes. and use all the material there to make more paperclips. And at the end of the day, you will have a galaxy, a universe maybe, where you have a fantastically advanced AI that has been programmed with one directive and it has done that to the detriment of every other living thing. <laughs> All right, Mr. Anderson. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that 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 responsibility has the the sensation of of responsibility is is a is a moral question, is a spiritual question, and I would argue has to be a scientific question. Yet. If science can be abused such that scientific knowledge derived from torture is considered advancement of science, there is an issue with the precepts of science. And I think that's a very compelling idea to, th to throw out knowledge that was, that was brutally gained and that even questioning, is it knowledge? Mm. If, it, if it, I mean, that's, a, that's, an, that's an interesting question. Like, mm. Knowledge comes from from pursuit of of something that this is making it a very zero sum because it's also annihilating as well. And I guess I want to bring up the word annihilating because I wonder, I wonder. And he was a humanist and outspoken about this far before his science was co-opted into atomic bombs, and he he doubled doubled against nuclear proliferation for the rem remainder of his life, but I wonder, do you think the abuse of his ideas pushed him deeper into his sp the spiritual underpinnings and the moral underpinnings of Einstein? Mm. I don't know. I, I'm not enough of a biographer of yeah, Einstein yeah. To, to really answer that intelligently. Maybe? I mean, he demonstrated a profound concern for for human life uh, and human decency long before I think his ideas were used to build the atomic bombs. And it was back in Germany. He fled the Nazi Nazi regime. He saw what was happening, and he he had he wanted to have no part in it. He didn't want to contribute to the science that would make a Nazi Germany potentially, you know, give them the, the, the ability to make a bomb or expand and spread their fascist ideology throughout the world. I could only assume that seeing how his, some of his knowledge was used to make the world a more deadly place, that that would be a driving force for sure. But it did not come from that. It came from, I think, his, his humanness and his care for other other human beings hmm. yeah I, I I think from from my understanding of of him as a man that's that's true I uh, so I, I want you to expound on a on a very famous statement that I think is often misinterpreted from Einstein and that God does not play dice mm. what do you what, <clears throat> that's there's a lot to unwrap in God does not play dice in those five words there's a lot to unwrap there yeah I've heard it's one of the f most famous quotes ever and it's something that is fascinating because it it is often misunderstood so first of all the context of where that comes from it was 
he wrote that in a letter to Niels Bohr, uh, who's one of the. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's they were debating how to interpret quantum mechanics, uh, and it was in the early days when Niels Bohr was uh, one of the fathers of quantum uh, mechanics and uh, the atomic model, and he and Einstein disagreed on on what to make of this bizarre new creature in physics, qu quantum mechanics, where there's no, you can never be sure of where a particle is, and you can never be sure of what speed it's traveling. Everything seems to be a wave and a particle at the same time. And the list goes on. It gets, it gets stranger and stranger the more you learn about quantum mechanics. And in, in, Einstein was actually a, sort of a conservative in, in this regard. He was a bit more uh, of a classical physicist in, in certain aspects, particularly in regards to quantum mechanics. He did not like the notion of randomness at the bottom of the universe. He was a determinist. Hmm. He looked at quantum mechanics and he's, he basically was saying, you know, I can't, I can't disprove the evidence because all the, all the experiments we're running seem to suggest that quantum mechanics is right. And in the, in the 80 plus years since, you know, its discovery, we've only found that it is more and more right. And yet at the same time, there's something profoundly strange and alien about the quantum mechanical world to the human common sense and the intuition um, because we live in a seemingly more or less deterministic world. And basically what Einstein was saying in that letter to, to Bohr is like, you know, I, I don't believe that God would play dice with the universe. I don't believe that uh, the universe fundamentally works on chance. Now some people point to this and they say, look, look, he believed in God. Mm. And that's not really true. He looked at the conventional notions of an anthropomorphic God, a personal God that you see in, in Christianity, in Judaism, even in, in any, any uh, human religion that makes a human-like deity and puts it up in, in the sky or at the, or at the start of the universe. Einstein thought that that version of God was a childlike notion. And it was something that is perpetuated by fear, by tradition. He really did not believe in God as most people understand religions to be talking about God. But he was not an atheist either. And in fact, many times he explicitly said, I am not an atheist. An atheist knows something that I do not. <laughs> did he reference texts himself? Uh, was he... Would he reference religious texts of any of any sort? Like, what was his actual rela relationship to more canonized re religions? Do you know? In his writings, in his quotes, in the books of, of his that I've read, he doesn't do it often. He had profound respect for the Jewish people. I mean, his own people and his own tradition. And he's, but even even for the the kind of Jewish biblical canon, the Torah and the uh, the stories there, he saw the, the nuggets of morality and the, the the good that can be found in religions. He didn't quote them very much, and he he much more was talking about. He talked about essentially Spinoza's God. He believed in Spinoza's God, and not the not the biblical God. It's funny. God does not play dice. Spinoza could have written that because he was a he threaded the needle so carefully between what 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 the potential accusation of unbelief, right, mm -hmm. right, right. But he threaded that needle so carefully. So, how, what what was that link log with Spinoza with him? How, how did that how did that work on Einstein? Yeah. So. Some background on who Spinoza was. Baruch Spinoza was a Jewish uh, philosopher living in Amsterdam around the, I want to say, 1600s. And basically, he created this conception of God. He published this, this tractate on that, that was, was very strange. And he, it basically, it's very complicated philosophy, but it boils down to this concept that nature is God and God is nature and what that philosophy is called is called pantheism uh, and pantheism is not the same as uh, you know uh, the Greek pantheon it's not believing in many gods it's basically equating reality to to God 
So everything you see, the stones on which we're sitting, the, the bugs that are chirping in the trees, and you and me, all of this stuff around us, and all of the patterns and all of the causality, all the history and all the future, that is God. And Einstein was exposed to Spinoza's writings fairly early on, I believe, and it really resonated with him. Several times he says, like, uh, that I, I'm a believer in Spinoza's God. And what he means by that is not that he believes in a God. Essentially, he believes in nature. He believes in reality. And Spinoza himself, to, to like really emphasize that this is, this is not a religious conception of God, Spinoza was excommunicated. Yeah, was from, not so popular. He was, he was excommunicated by his own Jewish community for his theories, for his philosophy, because they looked at it and said, this is atheism. It's heretical, right? I mean, it's, like, it right. was, yeah, completely heretical. And that is what Einstein is really getting at. It's he, his view of the world, his view of, of God and, and that which is most sacred and most great. It's not an agency. It's not some decision-making deity. I'll quote one of my favorite passages of, from Einstein. This is in his book, The World As I See It. And he says, the fairest thing that we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. He who knows it not can no longer wonder, can no longer feel amazement. That person is as good as dead. It is this knowledge and this emotion of the mysterious that constitutes the truly religious attitude. And in this sense, and in this alone, I am a deeply religious man. Hmm. As, as we're talking about the links between Spinoza and Einstein, I this funny thought that Spin so Spinoza's, you reduce the theory down to God is nature, nature is God. It seems like he, Spinoza would have wanted a quantum theory where the micro and the macro actually reflect one another beautifully. Mm. But one of the things that we've learned through through quantum mechanics is that they don't play very nicely. And there's that there's that wonder element as well that's in there. But I just had this thought that Spinoza would have wanted the micro and the macro to work a little better together. He sure, would have been in that sure, camp. That, sure. That would have been confirming to his spirituality for quantum mechanics to be a little neater. Sure. Yeah, oh, and, and, it's, and it's funny because, I mean, like, the incompatibility of quantum mechanics on one hand, the world of the very, very crazily small, and of what Einstein was involved in, relativity, special and general relativity, which is dealing with things that are huge, vast, like uh, on the scales of, of entire galaxies or, or black holes and speeds of light. Those two worlds, those two theories are to this day incompatible, mm. as you were saying. And I think it's it's probably not just Spinoza. I think so many scientists, Einstein included, felt feel this arcing like, you know, what what is up? Like yeah. our two greatest theories about the universe, both of which seem to be entirely uh, confirmable empirically, experimentally, on on their in their own worlds. Once you combine them, they break down completely. Right. There's this ache for them to to function together, and they just don't. And they just don't. I'm just curious if you you, you want to expound a little bit on 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 what what potential humanist value there is in them not being reconciled in, in we, us mm. having these gaping questions still even after a lot of work and a lot of thought into this yeah for sure um yeah and as you point out there's so much that we don't know and since einstein's time like there are just new questions and new riddles have appeared that we are struggling to, to, to fit into our conception of the universe as is. And scientists are not despairing about this necessarily. In fact, good scientists, I'd, I'd imagine, are thrilled that there is, there is so much you know, that we can't explain. Job security. Oh, job security, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we're we're going to be busy for, for at least another few centuries, if not maybe ever. <laughs> but yeah, there, there are so many like fundamental questions about where, what is dark matter? 
why why is there so much mass apparent mass in the universe we cannot account for what about dark energy why is the universe expanding not just expanding but accelerating in its in its expansion and then there are other questions about you know the universal constants why are they so finely tuned and so perfectly calibrated for atoms to form or for stars to form and to start burning these are these are really deep questions and we really don't have you know good answers for them there are a lot of hypotheses there are a lot of different theories but i think coming back to the question you 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 pose what where does this fit in terms of a kind of humanistic perspective on the universe i think this this gets to the core of what einstein was talking about you know about looking at the world and really not from an arrogant perspective not from a sense of oh look at all we've discovered and everything that we're going to eventually find out but from one of of humbleness and real really you know, admitting to our meekness and to our our blindness because there is so much that we do not know and that Einstein himself knew he didn't know there was a he did an object lesson once he drew a circle on a chalkboard and he said the inside of this circle represents uh, all of our knowledge and everything outside represents everything we don't know and as the area of you know the circle as the circle of our knowledge increases the circumference of our ignorance also increases i think many many atheists or or you know kind of those that are very gung ho about science and and rationalism what i think they miss is as powerful as our minds are and as much as we've been able to discover we know so little about how much really there is left to know and every time that einstein spoke about the real capabilities and marveled at how the rational mind is able to understand the structures of the universe usually in the same breath he would say um something to the effect of and and yet there is so much that we are ignorant of mm-hmm. and i think that modesty and that humbleness is is something that sets einstein apart from honestly i think many many contemporary atheists and those that look on human rationality with a sort of arrogance yeah there there isn't much necessary humility built into atheism is there <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to go a little bit on a tangent here for a moment so so bear with me i am not a religious person myself i wasn't raised religious i i was baptized greek orthodox at 2 years old but apparently i ran i i ran away naked out of the church so like we're not talking about <laughs> away a, from the priest <laughs> away from the priest yeah not not a particularly religious person and and not particularly not particularly learned in it but i've always been extremely fascinated by science and by and by specifically by uh the presence of extraterrestrial intelligence in the universe or the absence of it <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah yeah okay but but i want to expound a different idea of faith within science because this had profound this just had a profound effect on me in my freshman year i took this course with an incredible guy dr steven soder who worked directly with carl sagan on the cosmos series and was i think one of the one of the directors of the museum of natural history and just this consummate not only scientist but like humanist he very much had that very much had that 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 ethos and this course was called uh life in the universe and you tried to examine the question scientifically of what is the possibility and one of the things that he introduced early on that set my brain on fire was the the drake equation mm-hmm. and so the drake equation is an argument and an equation that is used to estimate the number of active extraterrestrial civilizations in the milky way milky way galaxy and a bunch of the factors within the equation of have like estimated values based around some degree of scientific consensus but there are multiple open variables to apply so anyone can approach this equation to try to figure it out right mm-hmm. 
and I can't remember exactly how many variables, but you're putting in something like likelihood that there that there would be a temperate range to for the existence of water, say. In in, a, in an orbital planet. Right, right, right. How many how many stars are there in the galaxy? How many of those stars would likely have planets? How many of those planets would likely be in the temperate range? And then on on and on. Right, right. So, so solving for the ingredients we've we've understood of the existence of carbon life. It's yeah. like all these things, right? And one of our very first homework assignments was to put a bunch of variables, you know, like put a bunch of our own guesses in and gather from other people their guesses. And a remarkable thing happened. If you had the humility within which to say, I'm not absolutely sure that there's zero possibility of this in any of the categories. If you put some number, even if it was wildly conservative, Wildly small. Wildly tiny, tiny, point oh, 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 oh. Mm -hmm. You end up with thousands, millions, billions of extraterrestrial intelligent civilizations. But Just by virtue of how many stars there are in the galaxy. Just by virtue that it's a big place. This yeah. whole 13.7 billion years of boom is yeah. big. And the thing that so fascinated me about it is there's faith embedded in that question. There's a mm -hmm. faith in what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Because I very much, I was an early proponent of SETI and would stare at the little blips on my screen thinking, was that blip? Was that blippy T? Was that blippy T? And as long as you imagined that you didn't know everything, you ended up with the very likely circumstance uh, that we're not alone in in this in this universe and and to me that there's something humanistic and and Einsteinian about that formation mm -hmm. to allow for that possibility and that and by the way that is my personal substitution for faith <laughs> and I'm not but, sure how well it deals with with births marriages and I'm not quite sure but, but you're you what you're saying is you you you're you're a believer in UFOs oh yes uh, it's, uh, okay all right all right I this is disbelieve, you're coming Daniel you are fully homo sapien wow all right. This is your way of coming out to me on this podcast. <laughs> right on top of my bluestone patio. Yeah, no, the Drake equation and that whole thing about are we alone in, in the universe? And if we are not alone, that puts all traditional religions in a, in a very funny place because humanity has placed itself at the center of its own theological solar system its own its own map of the universe forever we are we are the the center of of every religion and you know i think that's also you know a, a concept of of god in the sense of spinoza's god in the sense of einstein's god would actually have no problem with that of finding extraterrestrial life, intelligent, sentient, advanced life. Because Einstein didn't place humanity at the center of the universe. He, we were a species just like any other. And, and I think getting into a little bit more of his, of his beliefs, he, he was fascinated with the patterns that he found in the universe, the structures that existed all throughout science and all throughout you know, chemistry, biology, physics, the laws that, that we find are fantastically, you know, we, we find them through rationality. And nowhere have we yet seen the universe break down or slip up or like, oops, this particle traveled a little bit faster than light you know, this one time. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. And anywhere, uh, point your telescope anywhere, and you will find the same patterns repeated over and over again. Something that, that Einstein uh, repeatedly came back to, to, the, the, to this beautiful rationality, this beautiful structure that he, we see everywhere, he said like, there seems to be um, an intelligence in the cosmos. And whether or not that intelligence is, was intentionally designed by a creator, he never really says, but he finds himself constantly in awe that not only is there are the, these patterns, but we can comprehend them uh, bit by bit, even if imperfectly. 
and uh, I think finding other life forms in the in the universe would would in no way I think jeopardize like what we have discovered about about the universe. It would no in, in no way jeopardize you know your faith because I think as I was saying before, Einstein had this kind of humbleness. It's like we are on this rock going around this this on the edge of this galaxy in this little cul-de-sac and um, we look around and all of the the fundamental forces are calibrated in such a way that atoms are able to form and the speed of light is like the speed limit of the universe and stars form in this just this way that planets can form and life can form and honestly if if any one of these forces were even a little bit different than what it is then we would probably have a dead universe and nobody can really explain why why we have anything at all why these forces are in such perfect harmony that we can have a planet on which to stand that our atoms don't disintegrate or when we touch another person we don't have to worry about blowing up because they're made of antimatter and we're made of matter there's a there's a coherency that is unexplained it doesn't necessarily mean that it was designed with intention and agency and a, and a teleological purpose but Einstein was very much in awe of this and mm. constantly pointed to this yeah and I you know, use this word explain and I wonder if really it's more about describe because I'm thinking of something as simple as gravity which we have which we have been able to describe how it works and how it functions for a very long time and it has informed our technological uh, progress and scientific progress as a species and we can predict it unflinchingly and unfailingly yet we don't fully know what it is sort mm-hmm. of like magnetism which uh, mm-hmm. same sort of thing the and I, and I think and I think Einstein hung his hat on this idea which is being able to describe or imagine something is not to explain it away Sure. But wasn't yeah. this right? You're not. You're not trying to say, okay, got that one. And even fundamental forces of nature upon which our entire modern life is ba- uh, modern lives are based, we know very, very little about anything, mm-hmm. and, including what we quote know. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> right. That's to me the the beauty of that type of scientific pursuit and that type of faith. Which is that you can, you know, sign me up. Like, I, I'll, I might sign up for that in lieu of extraterrestrial intelligence in the universe. We'll see how, how well it's pitched, but I like that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what kind of uniform they give. At yeah, the, right, 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 right. At the um, gatherings. Are there, are, there, are there snacks at the meetings? You know, I have to know these things. I have to know these things. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think, honestly, this gets, this gets down to, like, what is... What is a way forward for us as, as a species in terms of our attitude towards the universe? Uh, much of, again, like one of the things that I come back to again and again is like we're at this strange point in our civilization when our old cause, cosmologies, our old myths are no longer really functional and our new science doesn't really give us a clear direction. Of, of where to go from here. How do we uh, ground ourselves and make meaning in, for ourselves in this new universe? And, and I don't think that mainstream atheism is really the way to go, or at least it's not, I think, rich enough in its current incarnation. Uh, and, and it wasn't rich enough in, in Einstein's time either. Yeah. He was talking about atheists and he basically said like I do not share the crusading spirit of the professional atheist whose fervor is mostly due to a painful act of liberation from the fetters of religious indoctrination received in youth. I prefer an attitude of humility corresponding to the weakness of our intellectual understanding of nature and of our own being. And there, I mean, he's not going to be a follower of Dawkins or Sam Harris if Einstein was around today. He's much more in line with Carl Sagan. You know, he, he says in another place that atheists are unable to hear the music of the spheres. And 
there's something to being able to witness and perceive beauty and perceive this awe and wonder that is inlaid in into the universe that I think is it's a way forward that at the same time it doesn't butt heads with scientific discovery or scientific understanding in fact it places scientific discovery at the very center of religiosity it's very much like the medieval uh, Muslim perspective that at the time Islam in medieval times was far and away ahead of the Christian world in many scientific discoveries. They created you know, the astrolabe, they created the abacus, they created algebra, uh, and none of this was in conflict with their, with their religion because understanding more about the world was understanding more about the mind of Allah, more about the design of God. There could be nothing in contradiction that you could find in nature because that is the way that it, mm. that it is. And Einstein, his theology, in a sense, his, the application of his belief in his, uh, about the universe was, in essence, that scientists are these kinds of... They're, they're these religious workers. They're, in a sense, these kind of uh, hierophants, which is basically this term for somebody who, who seeks to uncover hidden knowledge. And for Einstein, the duty of the scientist was to discover new things about the universe, and that was the spiritual end. That was the spiritual good. Uncovering something new about our biology or about, you know, how atoms interact on a chemical level. You know, all of this was a, a religious, a spiritual revelation. Mm. And so, yeah, in no ways is it uh, in conflict with science. It actually it places science as the bedrock of human spirituality, the mm. way that Einstein conceived of it. And I think that that is, that's a way forward into the 21st century, into the 22nd century for the, uh, the human species. We need religiosity. We need to feel like we have a place in the universe to have a connection with it. And we have to figure out a way to square the circle of of aligning that with what is actually true. Yeah, I have that. I have a, a thought for you. I don't have to expound too much on the dangers of capitalism. Most, most everybody knows about this. And there has been this response to the dangers of capitalism of how can we re-engineer capitalism. There's something called a benefit corporation, a B Corp, where there are multiple bottom lines, not just your, not just how much profit are you making for your shareholders, but there's another bottom line of what is the net effect on the globe, and another bottom line, which is what is the net effect on the laborers and the labor force that intersects with this business. So let's imagine then that Hiroshima and Nagasaki are sort of like proof in the pudding of science going too far to having too much capacity, nuclear proliferation being the obvious sort of like we've gone too far with this so i wonder what the what what a new triple bottom line the b corp version of science is i wonder if it could have instead of a singular master that it's trying to to, to achieve just constant growth of knowledge but if there was a little bit of a you know thou shalt do no harm if there was a if sure. there was a little bit of a something a little hippocratic embedded embedded within it because its effects are felt, you know? We do, wow, we've got major sonar research now, and all of a sudden whales can't find their, their way around, because that's how... Mm -hmm. the, sure, sure. You, everything affects everything else, so I wonder, in, answer, in, in answering your question for the 21st, 22nd, and beyond, um, very ambitious about the continuity of the human species here, 22nd, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I wonder what the Y2K of that one will be. But, uh, I, yeah, I just wonder, what, what are those other tethers to ensure that scientific expansion and growth serves our world and serves our soul. Yeah. I, I think it could even be irresponsible of me to try and answer that uh, <laughs> right here and now. But, but it's, I think that it is important, really important, that we think about these things actively. The ethical dimensions to our knowledge, how it's acquired and how it's used. 
because science is essentially it's a tool it's a way of knowing things it's it's an epistemology it gives way to technology to to other practical tools but using it how we use it that that's all up to us and how we end up using it our knowledge will ultimately reflect who we are as a species and who we end up becoming if we fail to really take stock of the dangers of our newfound powers then we will essentially doom ourselves we will damn not only ourselves but every generation that comes after us and maybe not only human generations uh, generations of countless other species on this planet and there are there are real consequences to what we're tinkering with especially with artificial intelligence because there there's then the risk of it's no longer just the balance of of the earth it then becomes a question of after we have a really sentient super ai then we're influencing the galaxy or even beyond you you may think that this is this is all just science fiction but uh, and and much of this started in science fiction but really with a capable artificial intelligence we would essentially be able to expand the boundaries of the earth till the universe's ends we'd be able to send our technology out through through satellites and through robots to to colonize other planets over and over and over again and i think we have to take a real hard look at ourselves right now and try and decide okay what what are we going to be remembered for not as individuals not as countries but as a species as a civilization and i think that that is something that the legacy of albert einstein really I think gives us pause to think about and his spirituality his mysticism is a way is a is a way of answering that is a way of thinking about these largest of questions responsibly and humanly mm. that's beautiful i think i'm going to read a lot more about albert einstein and what he actually said and wrote and thought because i think that need not be a theoretical question about a more responsible science i think it is an urgent question and one that requires more than science itself to answer yeah yeah well like a it's been fantastic Pleasure, as always. Pleasure uh, as always, yeah, my friend. Yeah, let's go play some pool. Shall All right, we? it is time to apply some science some, to the felt. Some physics. Some <laughs> physics, would you say? Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. You can support the show by going to reenchantmentpod.com, where you'll find a link to the Patreon page. Please support the show at whatever level you're able. And if money is not a way you can support right now, then please tell a friend about the show. This is a young podcast, and like most things, it needs love in order to grow. Thank you, and see you next time on Reenchantment.